We're looking for two oil boys who can grease us up before each competition. You do the thing you're scared shitless of, and you get the courage after you do it. That's the way it works. That's the dumbass way to work. It should be the other way around. You'll have to excuse my friend. The town is back that way. You should make a radical change in your lifestyle. I mean, the core of man's spirit comes from new experiences. That's the way it works. Don't worry, we'll catch our break too. Just gotta keep our eyes open. Hello. Welcome to the Looks Like We're Lost podcast, episode 21. I'm Dustin Redazel, and joining me, he's enrolling his kids at the Soulful Academy this fall. It's Tommy Cooksey. Here we are. Here we are. 21. 21 conse- almost consecutive weeks. Look at us. I, I almost said spring, and I was like, kids don't enroll in the spring. They do not roll in the spring, and spring is spring has sprung. So, man, how about uh, I love that this WeWork documentary, and we're going to talk about the WeWork documentary on Hulu uh, in this episode, guys. Um, this isn't a spoiler, but it is the very last thing they show in the documentary, which is this guy. After we work, after he just like is a terrible, terrible CEO and entrepreneur, he is starting a school called Student of Life or Life, <laughs> S-O-L-F-L, pronounced soulful. And he's just, he's doing it. He's rolling off another idea. Like, why not? Never stop reinventing. I, we will, um... yeah, what, what an ending, huh? It's, uh, <laughs> I have, I don't know, and we'll get into it for sure. And, and, uh, n- n- yeah, I guess this, this can't be either of our recommendations at the end or it can be, but highly recommend the documentary. Thought it was really well done. Um, but, you know, a little teaser here is I definitely went 360 on my thoughts around this thing. And I'll be really interested to see where you landed on it. Um, but both from, both from like a, you know, I think there's a couple ways to look at it from a documentary standpoint and, you know, the actual way it was filmed and the way it was done, but also what you think of the guy, what you think of the company. And I think it's got implications to the greater American economy as well, and maybe the world economy. But anyway, we don't want to jump in. We'll get to it. Yeah. 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 I, uh, Real briefly, um, you know, if you're tuning in and you didn't hear last week's episode, we spoke with Quint Coward. Uh, out of 30,000 uh, men who competed in the CrossFit Open in his age bracket, 35 to 39, Quint beat over 29,500 of them. Yeah. Which, when you put it in that type of a dynamic, like, 29,500 get behind him. Right. That's really what made it super impressive to me. Uh, so it's a good conversation. We talk a lot about fitness, a little bit about fatherhood, um, spend some time um, on the next topic. Uh, you know, 
police in America and about, what was it, 20 minutes ago? Um, about, yeah, maybe at most an hour ago or so. Yeah, uh, the results of the Derek Chauvin trial came out guilty on all three accounts. What's your immediate feelings? It's, it's, we, I mean, it's, it's kind of, I don't know, man. It's, there's, there's some sadness because it, in some ways it's, it feels like maybe there should be some vindication, like the system did what it's supposed to do, but a guy's life is ruined and another guy's life is gone. And, you know, Derek Chauvin's family, right? Their, their lives are ruined all, all on account of a really unfortunate and terrible situation. Um, but you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm no lawyer. I'm not a police officer, but it, 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 it seems that everything that I listened to, you know, about it was, was, was really, you know, insinuating that this wasn't a kind of a, a gut instinct reaction. You know, sometimes, you know, because a gun is a deadly weapon, you react, pull the trigger and it's over in a, in, in a millisecond. You know, this was kind of a prolonged situation, whereas there were many opportunities to cease the action. And so, you know, in, in that in that regard, it, it seems that maybe justice was served. Yeah. Yeah, I think the. I told Katie told me. Uh, as usual, I'm like hardly ever looking at the news. Uh, and she told me, and then like, I look it up and my immediate reaction to her was that I felt simultaneous, simultaneously relieved and sad. Yeah. Uh, I think relieved because the events of George Floyd's murder were not just unsettling because of the racial implications or seeing uh, a man murdered on yeah. like a 10 minute murder, right? right? Like it's, it wasn't just that it's that the system we have to protect us and to, um, to distribute the force of government in this country wasn't working. It didn't work. And so when you see the system then do what you hope it does in convicting the person who perpetrated the crimes, it's like, okay, well, maybe it's not totally lost, right? Like, the, I don't know what happens in this country if they, they let a white man off easy when he was filmed killing a black man in the streets and he's protected by the badge. It, there's, there's too much around that. Right. Uh, it, and so relief, but it doesn't feel like a win, you know, no. it's, it's like, I'm glad, but it's like, it was just kind of the final chapter in a really sad story. Yeah. And you know, the, the whole thing on justice is served. Like, yeah, it, it was, but that doesn't bring George Floyd back, right? It mm-hmm. doesn't undo the wrong. So, 
I'm a little melancholy, even though like I'm I'm glad it went the way it went. I I guess. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's this weird. Don't want to celebrate. It's it's it, it feels weird to celebrate something like that, doesn't it? Yeah, because it's not like anybody was was given. It's not like anybody necessarily gained anything. Except no, like for I to might say, celebrate. Oh, yeah, ahead. I was going to say, except for to say this, that had this same thing happened 50 years ago, it probably doesn't go the same way. Maybe 20 years ago, it doesn't go the same way. And so maybe mm-hmm. as slight as it may seem, maybe this is progress. Maybe this is... Yeah, maybe if maybe, you use the scope of history, right, you can... That's can, if I yeah yeah. The, the, there's definitely progress being made, isn't there? And it doesn't feel like it doesn't to me seem like it's it's it seems long overdue. It's not forced progress. It's progress that came by way of the systems that are in place. Um. So and 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 by that I I also mean you know the the protests. Now of course you know I wouldn't condone. You know, violent rioting and all that stuff, but but the protest served that what they what they were intended to do, which is bring a case that could have easily just been swept under the rug to the forefront of national and global notoriety. And so, you know, all the all the mechanisms at work that that led to this were. I guess kind of led you know, I, I resulted in what we would have hoped someone who most people would perceive to have committed a crime to serve the penalty for that crime. So yeah. you you want to believe there's a moral order to this universe and you want to feel that you understand it so that you can navigate the world appropriately not just for yourself but for others. And it's it is reassuring to see a portion of that upheld by today's verdict. Mm-hmm. I I feel better about that. I where I tried to rudely interrupt you in saying That's what I would right. celebrate. Uh, I I would celebrate an overhauled system that had that gave me those same assurances about moral order. In advance, if I had some pre-assurances that people were treated equally, like that would be a celebration. And I think you called that a good thing, which I probably overlooked in my initial reaction, is everything that's happened over this past year, um, from the protests to the coverage, uh, the things that have happened on social media, the way the discussion was handled in the news, it built to this moment in which we saw the system do the right thing and more coverage like that is a positive step towards that eventual overhaul that gives that preventative assurance about the way we as a society operate. So there's probably a little bit more there to be happy about, even though that, you know, I have to apply a lot of intellectual effort to get there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, all in it, all, a good thing. Yeah, I think you know to to, to frame it in, in a different way. Like maybe we're choosing the wrong words. Happy is probably not the right word. 
We're not going to have a, you know, we're not going to, this isn't going to become a national holiday. We're not going to have a parade, an annual parade. Um, But, but I would say that it, it, it feels significant. Yeah. And it feels significant in the appropriate direction, which, which like you said, I think that aligns when, when a system and your sort of moral compass align it feels like it's doing what it's supposed to do when it doesn't mm-hmm. is what creates a lot of unrest you know in the same way that For when sure. you meet when you meet somebody when their behavior aligns with uh what you would expect from someone in that situation it feels right and when it doesn't you either get taken advantage of um or or you you know you feel like a fool in front of that person so well, speaking of getting taken advantage of and feeling like a fool, there's a lot of people who worked for a company called WeWork mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who got taken crazy advantage of. Um, so for those who haven't seen it, uh, Hulu, the streaming service, has a documentary called, get this name right, we work or the making and breaking of a $47 billion unicorn. Do you want to try to give a synopsis of this documentary? So I, I think we should probably set the stage because b- before I listen, that's what to I'm a, saying. Just I was a, gonna a say, quick like, summary, like what, what we work was even intended to be. Um, and what it sort of was in reality. So it was intended to be this, uh, it was, it was a New York, uh, New York city startup. Um, and, um, it was intended to revolutionize the way people, uh, interact in a working society across the world, a more communal yep, approach. Labeled it as the First physical social network. Exactly. Yes, that's exactly right. And whether it was always his intention or somewhere along the way, he was blinded by the dollar signs. He wanted to have a, what they call a unicorn, which I guess if if I recall correctly, it's a business that's valued at a billion dollars, right? Or is it a hundred billion? I believe it was a billion. It was a billion dollars. Yeah, and there's a there's a time frame. It's like heading into an IPO, uh, but yeah, basically it's a billion dollar company. And a, a so billion, yeah. the reason they the reason they call it a unicorn is because all these venture capitalists, um, you know, you're you bet on companies with your capital the way you bet on horses, and the way you get rich is one of them pops off. So the idea is like everything else is a horse, you but if you get your money on the right unicorn that that one in a thousand company. Yeah. Like that's the thing that turns you into a billionaire overnight. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So so yeah, it's really a I mean if if so from a from a how it's filmed, it's really uh a a a story of the rise and the fall of 
of a Adam unicorn Newman. of Adam Newman and this company that was he was trying to turn into not just a business but a revolution of everything <laughs> like everything and and yeah. that's I mean that that is that that's probably a good place to start is to me and and I maybe maybe I'll end up coming 180 360 again on this but I think this is what you run into when um you have unhindered capitalism is is you have a guy that was charismatic enough and you call it visionary enough, but I just think, I don't know if visionary is the right word. Maybe, maybe, like I said, I'll come back to it, but he found a way to try and monetize being a human, like being a human. We've talked about it a lot of times. I mean, that was the hardest part for people during the pandemic. It wasn't necessarily the fear of getting sick. It wasn't, um, you know, necessarily being home or being able to exercise. It was not being able to be in community. And so everything around the, we is monetizing people's need or desire to be part of something bigger than themselves, part of a community. And I mean, that's the success of Facebook, Twitter, all of the social medias. His attempt was to do it in a physical sense. And so in that way, I don't think anything he did necessarily was unethical. I mean, well, maybe we'll come to that. But I think without people like him, with with a vision trying to go after something, you lose innovation. But it's maybe a bigger indictment on Wall Street than anything else. Yeah, I think so... For those who aren't familiar with the story, uh, and most of you, if you live in cities, you probably have a WeWork mm-hmm. that you've driven by or seen in your skyline. We have one here. Um, yeah. yeah, we got one here in Raleigh. Uh, so theoretically, they made it. The company was valued over a billion dollars. And then when they tried to go public and uh, people started taking a closer look, it plummeted, rapidly devalued. Yeah. So what they were doing as a company, they weren't making anything. They weren't producing anything. No. They were buying space. Not even buying. Leasing. They were leasing mm-hmm. space in uh, in these large buildings, starting out most heavily in New York, spreading out throughout the country and world. And uh, then they would just repackage it, make it a really nice office space or a really nice like micro condo, micro apartment, and then put all this fancy WeWork, WeLive marketing on it and release it to whoever wanted to use the space. And WeWork, uh, obviously mostly entrepreneurs, tech startups, and you see these spaces and there is a draw, right? You For get sure. all the benefits of... Uh, Working at a large corporate company, you know, you like the the bar in the office, the coffee, the snacks, like, and you get to feel like you're a, a part of other people, even as you're working on supposedly your individual passion project. Yep. Um, 
So the the <laughs> I was telling Katie I was trying to like explain. It's funny that you went all the way to like exploitation uh, capitalism. Yeah. Well, because I thought it's what happens when your company is all culture and zero innovation. Yeah. So you know the and I can see it, right? Like capitalism is just like, do you have capital? Can you start something? Like you can get lost in the the details of it. But one of the things that I thought, and they barely hit it in the documentary, but as things got bad and they're renting out these spaces and they're trying to find people to fill the space. And we're talking about New York real estate. Right. It's cutthroat. It's tough. It's hard to find good space for uh, a cheap price. And so the one of the WeWork lawyers is telling this story, and he says that, you know, people were coming to him, and it's like, hey, look, you know, they're small. They can't pay a lot for the space right now, but let's just give them a break in the first year, like 80% off in the first year, and they'll grow, and we'll grow with them, and we'll help them get there. That's what we're about. WeWork helps people work. Yeah. And so the the lawyer's like, well, you know what? He actually digs into the paper trail, and this little company they're trying to help out with office space. Oh, it's it's a division of Microsoft, right? Google, right? Yeah, right. And so capitalism, like it preyed on some individuals, but it still like it did what capitalism is going to do. Yeah, like the weaknesses in the system were found in a company that didn't really like make or create or or do anything or provide anything they just repackaged eventually got eaten alive and i'm interested in you saying uh not necessarily anything wrong what did you think of the we work business plan like did you like what they were doing um i don't think i did i don't think so i think it's too cl- i think it was it felt almost too cultish. And when I had, when you and I were talking about this um, just on the side, I started to then think about like companies that I've worked for and, you know, our sales meetings and trainings. And there is a lot of like hurrah. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of like, we are one. And maybe not to like the Lollapalooza fire festivals type hype that these people went on these like, you know, week long retreats. But, but there's definitely, you know, as I took a step back and looked at it from a lens of like, I've been to some of these types of, you know, events. I'm like, maybe they were just, they they were just trying to cultivate a culture and it just happened to be a more of a younger entrepreneur type um, culture. I it's it's just it's I just think, this bizarre. Yeah, I think two things happened. I think out of hand, the idea is not terrible. Like you know, any sort of product or 
or culture, whatever you're selling, it, you're just trying to package an idea for human consumption. And I do think there's a market for people, you know, outside of this pandemic, I do think there's a market for people to rent office space. And that it would be awesome if those offices could be nearby like-minded folks who are also working on a dream and a passion. Mm -hmm. And like that energy can, can carry you through and who knows what kind of synergy can happen when you put multiple people in the same place. Like it's not a ridiculous idea, uh, out of hand, but then I don't know if I'm oversimplifying this, but there's a certain amount of like becoming a victim of your own BS because their marketing was good. Like, Very good. It it looks fun and yeah. it looked like a fun place to be working. And I I think if you did that slowly and you didn't get all this intrigue and this is where I, I would probably agree that like Wall Street and capitalism are really to blame. It's like if you're Adam Newman and people are coming to you with more and more money and you know that, hey, this may or may not work and companies succeed and companies fail. Yeah. But meanwhile, as I take this rocket ship up, I can, I can move slices off over here. Like, there's only upside for that guy. I the mean, only the, downside yeah. is is if you are a moral person concerned about lying and wrecking the lives of others. And this is probably the largest indictment on capitalism that I've ever thought of. And that is that capitalism always favors the amoral person. Mm. Not the immoral person. Sometimes it can be negative to be immoral. But if you are amoral, you're not necessarily like trying to do good and you don't really care about doing bad. All you care is like looking at the results and negotiating the consequences. If you are amoral, capitalism is your game, right? Yeah. Like he doesn't have to worry about others and it worked out great. He made a ton of money. He became a big name. So what if we worked it and make it? He's doing fine. You know, that's what I ultimately came back to is like companies start and fail all the time. And sometimes it's from their own doing. You know, it like um WorldCom and all those in like the you know, the late nineties, early two thousands that were legit doing things illegal. Um it's uh yeah well you know it's 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 also it's it's a very cultural thing so i mean i yeah we're both adam grant fans i saw this thing he he shared recently that was uh, something to the effect of you know pay attention don't just pay attention to what gets punished in a culture also pay attention to what doesn't get punished in a culture mhm and in this situation charisma Big dreams, uh, big ideas. That's the American way. I mean, it, it's the way that we do things. And I, to me, I, I still go back to the fact that I'm like, 
people were so blinded by the potential that they like you know, one one of the quotes in the movie, and I hope we don't ruin this for people. I hope people still go watch it. <laughs> but no, but, like hey, if it, pause this, watch it. This evergreen content—that's what looks like that's, the lost is that's about. That's exactly right. But but the uh, the lawyer says he's in the back. He's an, he's a little bit older than the rest of these people. He's you know if these if everyone average age is twenty five to thirty, he's probably forty to forty five at the time. And he said he's in the back while there's this big concert going on, and one of the security guards uh, says, "You know what's this all about?" And the guy, you know, the lawyer explains it, and he goes. This is a real estate company, <laughs> and he's basically saying what what I can't understand, and it's still like I'm thinking about it, and I'm like, how did nobody just like see that? Like, I, like there are tons of people that buy and lease real estate, make it look better, and then sublet it. And so, what was mm-hmm. it like? What was it about this particular one that people were like, this is different. This is changing the way it, it's done. Because there's incubators well, everywhere, right? For startups. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I was kind of meaning about, like, becoming a victim of, like, your own bullshit, basically. Yeah. Is there's a lot of money in creating bubbles. Bubbles get a bad rap because they burst. But if you get out before the bubble bursts, there's a lot of money to be made. And this is just always the way, it's the way the American economy works, right? Up and down, up and down. Mm -hmm. And like conservative investors tell you like, well, you know, just stick with the sure things, go for the long haul. But if you're not conservative, like you got to ride the waves and you got to ride the bubbles. And so like if you're one of these uh, venture capitalists, it's also, okay, can we get far enough? Can we cash out? There's probably a lot of variation in thought. And, you know, I'm not smart enough to say who's the smart money and who's the tag-along money. Yeah. But I'm sure a lot of smart money did really well by taking it to a certain point. Uh, what do you think? You know, I'm, I, I think one I'm of sure the a things, lot more people got burned. One of the things that I grapple with, with, the, with maybe him as a person... Is, and we won't know this. This is just our speculation. But what percentage of him actually believed in this mission of we? And what percentage of him was more like, I just. I just want to make as much money as I possibly can. I'm willing to bend morally. I'm willing to bend truths and I'm and and I can memorize sort of a talk track and I'm a charismatic person and so I'm just going to take this as far as it can go and if it doesn't if it doesn't end with the big unicorn I'm going to get out and take my money anyway like it's hard I think yeah yeah I think very little of them is the I'm going to bend morally and I'm going to bend and that's why I said not immoral yeah. but amoral. Yeah. And I I think that it's tough for part of what makes us a an incredible story is when people like you and I are watching it we're shocked and we're horrified. And this also goes back to uh 
and correct me on this because I'm going to kind of butcher it a little bit, but the talking with strangers default to truth. Yeah, I have that aspect down of too, people. Yeah. Truth bias. Yeah. Right. So with somebody like this, I think he's buying into it. And like I said, if he can make it work, if he, if everybody just believes that we work is a good idea and doesn't start poking holes in the fact that like, okay, he's leveraged to the hilt. They're renting all this. Like they don't own anything. Mm -hmm. If everyone just keeps on believing it and they IPO it out and then it's something that is shared publicly as an investment and enough money comes in to start buying up, it's okay. Like, it makes it. And it would stabilize through the potential bursting of the bubble. And so I think if you're him, you've got to believe you can make it, and you think that's the way it works. I don't think that he's, like, writing it and saying, like, well, screw these people. Yeah. And I think it's a convenient narrative device in hindsight to look at, like, oh, well, he pocketed all that money on the way up, or, yeah. like, he was just using the company jet. Like, did he have did he have no sense of accountability? Yeah. It's like, that makes more sense in hindsight, but I don't think it explains who he was as a person, which is just, like, the like the very fact that, He's starting another company and not sitting, sitting on, on his cash. Right. It was never about. Uh, it was never about getting out. It's about the action. Well, you know, it's and it's where I started. Where like my, I started to change shift on him. Was when they got this huge. Well, what do you ultimately think of him? I, like, think I don't I, think you've you've clarified. Like I think I think he's pretty much a douchebag. He's he's definitely uh I don't think he's a bad person. I think if you he's a little bit of a no, D-bag. I don't either. He, he's yeah. a little bit of a D-bag. He's very but you know, a lot of people that that are in his type of position are. I mean, that's just that's the type of person that it takes to consequences be damned you're just you're, you march to the beat of your own drum um i think what you know what i'll say now will kind of tie it tie it all back together is when when they got this huge influx of money and you started to see him you know four or five years ago looking into things like using beacon technology to um show capacity of um like you like like um, office spaces using that to track where people are in a building and things like this i mean i'm having those conversations now right mm-hmm. and he was thinking about them 4 or 5 years ago and so i look at what he was trying to he was trying to leverage the workspaces that he had to create a next well, you know i hate this phrase but a next generation workplace a we mm-hmm. workplace. And so I think I ended up on he is a very charismatic leader um but not a very intelligent business person. I think and the so, thing yeah, yeah, the the charisma is where I wanted to pause for a second because I do think there's there's 
a couple things that's fascinating about watching this in hindsight. I didn't know much about Adam Newman prior. Like yeah. maybe I'd read a couple articles. I knew zero. So uh, <laughs> I I, re- I remember seeing him on pictures and stuff. So maybe it's just like a collective, uh, you know, some kind of specter of a memory when a guy's just in yeah. the news for a while. Yeah, but. Uh, I was saying to uh, my sister-in-law that what's weird about watching something like this on the, like after you know everything that's happened and you hear all the things that Adam Newman is saying, like in the early days of WeWork, and they sound good, but you know that they're not good. You know, he's talking about like uh, in a a workplace that could feel like a home, a home that could feel like a passion, mm-hmm. and like he's he's creating this idea of a world that seems like it should be possible. Why not? Why does work have to be drudgery? Why can't work be joyous? You know, why why can't work be connective? And it all sounds good, but because you know what he did. <laughs> You, it also sounds crazy. Like, this guy's a damn lunatic. Yeah. And it's really weird to try to imagine yourself being on the front end of that and try to act like you wouldn't fall for it. You would 100% Absolutely fall for it. 100%. <laughs> You'd be partying at the raves, fist pumping, chanting, we work, we work. Yep. You'd totally fall for it. And Yeah, and I think that's where, that's where you, you mentioned the default to truth, the truth bias, which essentially, yeah, we, we're assuming that the person we're engaging with is what we take them for or is what they are saying. But you ha- you do have a lot of examples throughout history and they're, but they're the ones that make the news, you know, like a Bernie Madoff, mm-hmm. um, who time, who fittingly, he, he just passed away. Um, you have, you know, I think probably the most notorious is Hitler, multiple mm-hmm. prime ministers and you know pe- people go and say he doesn't want you know he doesn't want war and so the the question is and what I kept going back to we won't know because you're right you you frame you're framing the result with trying to figure out what his motive was at the beginning and those are two different things but you know if if we default to truth he's not a bad guy he's just a guy that got caught up in a lot of his own hype and was given a lot of money and just kept rolling with it. Like, how far can we take this thing? And, and to his credit, if other smart people are giving me money, <laughs> then I must be on to something. And there is, there's a little bit of the, like, who's the greatest thief who ever lived? Well, you'll never know. Right. right. Yeah. There's a little bit of that here. Like, we know... He's a thief because he got caught. But what he did is really not that much different than, and comparing it to a physical social network is a good place because I think the contemporaries actually are like a Facebook or a Twitter if you're just trying to conceptualize it. Because it's hard to remember. Like, it's a little easier with Twitter because of the, or with Facebook because of the movie The Social Network that like Facebook didn't do anything it didn't create any revenue Mm -hmm. just people were using it 
but it didn't have come with the overhead, right? Like that's the main differentiator. Yeah. WeWork has a crap ton of overhead, but Twitter same way. Like to this day, people are still saying like, "Is how are we actually going to use this thing? Like this is ridiculous." Yeah. One hundred and forty characters. Come on. Yeah. Uh, and yet, if enough people start using it, it becomes self-sustaining. So if you believe that, and you're you're Adam Newman. Like, of course you're not a bad guy. You think you're just weathering the storm. That said, once everything got really bad and he wouldn't rethink his position. Yeah. And then he was intentionally lying to people to get them to bring more money into a failure, to get them to to work harder and longer, and preying upon people's passions manipulating them more or less yeah like that's when it it turns it's like this guy's probably a bad guy the the thing that i i liked that you mentioned was that this probably says more about us and the way we lionize certain human attributes like even these people who have been wronged by Adam Newman, that were working with him most closely and had their lives and their futures and their bank accounts completely depleted. Yeah. They still, all the words that, like, that they used to describe him, words like his incredible gifts, his incredible charisma, and like it was still so much praise. Like, oh, if you were around this guy. Yeah. Like he just commanded a room, yeah. you know? And so even after they've been completely wrecked, they can't let go of these things that they just want to like give them so much credit for. Well, and, and think about it too, that these are people that became, you know, friends and sometimes probably more than friends, probably marriages came out of it that they would otherwise not have ever experienced had this not been brought together for better or for worse these people ended up bonding. He, he created a real social network, a live social network. He created like a way for people to live. That's what I mean by mm-hmm. he monetized just being human. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why it's still so confusing. It's like, what was it about this moment and this company and this guy that all of these smart people on Wall Street and these venture capitalists were like, they couldn't see through the BS. They couldn't see that but he's just leasing, repurposing, and then subletting this stuff. You know, like that. There was no, there was nothing beyond that. There was no smoke and mirrors. Well, it was literally, it was just, you know. So, I think some people did see it, but they were afraid to say it. What do you mm. think that is? Like, why are people afraid? <sighs> that th- there's something. You know what I'm gosh, saying? I need to, yeah, I need to remember it in. Um, there was a there is a psychological term for this it was in talking to strangers um and it's the same reason why people stay in bad relationships it's like everyone from the outside can say this isn't this isn't good this isn't good right but there's not enough this isn't good to create enough doubt for me to pull back Mm. Right. So it's like they had their doubts, but if they're 
if they're two and then there's a hundred that are saying, no, I'm pouring money into this and, and we, we can't walk around as the, the doubting, you know, the doubting Tom, there are yeah, people that are like that, social evidence. Right? Yeah. This, it does actually remind me of something and maybe it was from talking to strangers, but there's, there's some example of a box with a locked door. Uh, and or maybe the door's open. Let's say it's a box, it's clear, there's a banana in it. So they have a human being walk up to the box, knock the top of it, knock the right side of it, open the door, pull out the banana. The monkey comes in and he just walks up to the box, opens the door and pulls out the banana. One step. Mm-hmm. Got it as quick as you possibly could. A human watches the other human knock the top, knock the right, open the door. The human walks in, and their first attempt isn't to open the door. Their first attempt is knock the top, knock the right, open the door. Yeah. We assume that there is a logic to the way that other people behave. Yeah. And so we try to follow that logic because we think it behooves us that we're actually cutting out the discovery process. No, I saw the way this is done. I'm going to do it just like that, and then I will also reap the reward. Instead of trying to be innovative or just figure it out for ourselves. Well, and part of that, so that so that's what he that's what's it that example isn't used in talking to strangers, but that exact experiment is indirectly referenced in that we assume that we we assume that what people are doing and how they're doing it is the appropriate way to do it without asking too many questions because if we lived mm-hmm. our lives asking too many questions we'd be society would cease to exist there's a certain mm-hmm. level of i i trust that this is moving that the inertia is moving in the right direction <laughs> and so i'm going right. to go in that direction uh the example that was used was bernie madoff though right i mean bernie madoff mm-hmm. by all accounts Anybody that looked at what he was doing was like, there's something up here. But really wealthy, really smart people were still dumping millions of dollars into this. Yep. The SEC wouldn't, didn't even review it, even though they had gotten complaints. And this guy, Harry uh, Markopoulos was his name. He's, he is your doubting Tom. Mm-hmm. He, he tried to get sealed envelopes to the SEC to say, you guys have to look into this. This is there's something suspect here. And they're like, it doesn't meet enough criteria for us to look into it. And finally, he just kept poking, poking, poking. And he and he's the one that, that ultimately uncovered it. Um, but he's also the kind of guy that, you know, he, he sits in his house with, uh, you know, with body armor on, <laughs> you know, and and a loaded gun at all times. He's just one of these paranoid people. And so. You know, you don't want to come off as that kind of person. So yeah, you're, you're mm-hmm. right. There were there were people that were looking at this like, this is a, I don't want to touch this. This is too hot. It's you know, there. This is just a real estate company. But they weren't going to go out and put it on blast because the shame they would get from their peers that are like, I'm dumping millions into this. This is the way to go. This is the future of work. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny because I've given you a hard time the past few episodes about having such a high cost of action, but things like this are exactly why I just don't mess with the stock market. Oh, dude. You know, nope. it's, it's like I'm going to write out my index funds, 
just plugging away. I get curious. Like, ab- I get curious about it ab- probably about twice a year. Mm-hmm. Where I'm like, maybe I should drop a few bucks in into this thing. Or oh that yeah, thing. yeah. You think about some crypto. Uh huh. What's what's what are these Robin Hood guys doing, dude? And, and now now it's getting all you know. You have the NFTs and you have Dog Coin and you like I don't, I can't even keep up with this stuff. Um, but you know, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm yeah my my high cost to action puts me somewhere in between someone that just flows with the inertia and Harry Markopoulos who is doubting who doubts everything. Well, if there's one area that and this goes to like the NFTs or is it crypto or is it GameStop, like whatever the hot thing of the day is, if there's one thing that Adam Newman was dead on about, it's that we live in an attention economy. Oh yeah. If you if you've always got the eyeballs and the earballs Definitely the earballs. Then like you're gonna be fine. An audience is all you need to make a massive amount of money. Yeah. Yeah. And that I mean, hey the, say that they're a vapid company for just being a logo and renting desks. But like they rode that attention to what was the the final number? Is something like, like forty seven point seven billion? I thought it was like forty seven. Forty seven billion. Hold on, isn't that what it says? Chasing the forty seven. I think billion. it's on the title. Yeah. Yep, forty seven billion. Look at me, three point seven. You were off by a couple billion. Where did I even get that number? Th- that that's like just lying. That's like saying Donald Trump and Bill Gates have the same amount of money. Come on, hilarious. Um, it's quaint. But let's Trump's still keeping track of the decimal point still to this day. Uh that's <laughs> Yeah, 1.2 billion. Yeah, and and 72 cents. Don't don't forget it. Um how terrifying though. His wife was was unique. Very unique. Yeah. Almost and I wonder if her level of like cuz you know th- that was one of the biggest knocks of the uh of the IPO when it comes out is there were things like spirituality and the essence of the company will take it to its next level. It was like, and, and she was very, not that being spiritual is a bad thing at all, but when you're talking about like dollars and cents, it, it sort of created a lot of, a lot of anyway, how terrifying is the potential of them having a viable curriculum, school curriculum? <laughs> Uh, it's not, I don't have a lot of hope for it, No, but I'm an open guy. I believe in development, you know, it might, maybe uh, they're onto something. Hey, well on the, on the bright side there, supposedly it's like 40 to $60,000 for, we're talking, we're talking like elementary school. Yeah. Just a little, so, just a little outside of my of my budget. Yeah, they're probably. Uh, I'm just. I'm willing to guess that the teachers are vastly underpaid, based on the track record of the documentary. I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah. And so, at the very least, it means rich people would go there, and if it's a bad curriculum, you know, trickle it back down. 
those, <laughs> those kids can grow up to blow their parents' inheritance, get it back circulating. That's it. But yeah, all in all, though, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was I thought it was very interesting for something that I didn't really pay attention to in the news. Um, and for he makes a nice villain. He does. He makes a good villain. He does. I. I think I was trying to think of like, well, what's the real takeaway here for someone like me? Like, I tried. Look, sometimes things are just entertainment. Yeah. But for the most part, I think intelligent people, when they read something, watch something, when they consume information, like the intelligent way to consume information is like, how is this going to help me solve either the current or future problems that I encounter in life? And I was trying to, like, what can I actually get from this? Yeah. You know? And I I don't think I've really settled on something, but if there's there's one thing, and part of this is just it's a, it's a raw nerve for me, but they mentioned something about millennials and why millennials were susceptible to the, the WeWork mm-hmm. uh, pitch. Yeah. Was that millennials want a calling, not just a job or a career. And... I, one, like, I think that's a little ridiculous. Yeah. You know? I I think millennials want something solid. If it can be a calling, that'd be great. But I think we want the same thing every generation before us has ever wanted. Yeah. And that, that whole thing, like, oh, I'm looking for a calling. I don't know how that got into the culture, but it was like a way to take advantage of young workers. It's like, yeah. oh, you can find a home here. You have a passion here. And it's like, okay, well, you know, can I get a match on my 401k? Yeah. The, I've, I've got a future I'm planning for. Yeah. The, I think that there's something about the, the seduction of an unvetted idea. Like, if you haven't really examined your own personal life to say, what goals probably even the wrong way but like what are my principles does this align with those values and where are those taking me and what are they doing for the people who are closest to me in my life and that you really need to guard those closely the unvisited uh portion that i thought was interesting that as things turned the community got very insular, right? Yeah. Like, we work people, we're only hanging out with we work people. If somebody said something bad about we work, it was like quickly shunned. Or uh, somebody found out something negative about the churn rate of the offices, and they were also dismissed from the offices. Right. You know, if the guy who had friends outside of the We Live Apartments... Like, they stopped coming over because the We Live people weren't inclusive, right? It's like, those are fringe things, but if you were an individual who had your priorities correctly aligned, it would make you a lot more bulletproof against the seduction of immaterial things. You know, a passion, a calling, 
a promise. Like all of that stuff is kind of the cult leader saying, drink the Kool-Aid. You'll, you'll wake up in paradise. Yeah. So I, you know, that's kind of a big lesson that comes in a lot of different forms. And sometimes it's like investing in a GameStop, like, Oh, this will be the one, right? Yeah. Like it's just, but I don't know. I, it's something like that. I'm I'm still kind of sorting through it. Well, I, I always think it's funny. You brought up the the whole like millennials, and we have to, you know, we want we want a calling. I I always laugh when when you see these things that are like, oh, I'm tired of this participation trophy generation. It's like, well, you were the people that made the trophies and gave them to us. <laughs> we didn't go out and yeah. make them for ourselves. We didn't ask for the trophies. That was you. Um, right. You know, the you can be anything you want if you put your mind to it. Okay. Yeah. You had me. Yeah, it was <laughs> like you gave birth to it me. It was an older gener it was an older <laughs> generation that like saw their own identity in their kids and couldn't handle the fact that their kids could fail. And then when the kids grow up and they're not adapted to failure, they immediately turn around because now it can't be a failure on their parenting. Because it's still their identity, and they still can't handle like that blight, and so they blame the very kids that they shouldered with that character yeah. defect. Yeah, and I also don't think it's true. I think uh, I don't know. I don't know like how that all bubbled up, but I know hundreds of millennials, and we're two of them. We are, and like. like I have competed. I have failed. I've I've gotten trophies, and I have not received trophies. Mm-hmm. It's just a dumb blanket statement that doesn't mean it's anything. Terrible. Yeah, and you know, I think it it also puts this weird undue pressure on us. And what I mean by that is, like, I'm I'm extremely happy working at the company that I work for. I'm extreme. I, I, I like that for the most part, it's Monday to Friday. There's some work on the weekends, but, and I get to pursue other things that are of interest to me. And and a lot of that is just fitness, my family, my friends, leisure time. Um, But, you know, there's, there's this ingrained in the millennial culture is what's your passion you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. and we have a lot of people like that on the pod. You're one of them. You're passionate about writing. You know, without a doubt, that if you if you could make, we've talked about it, if you could sustain your level of income and do anything, you would just write. A lot of times for me, hey, I'm just happy being a dad and a husband and having a job that I that I like doing and people that I like working with. And that's enough, you know? Well, what I think is interesting about the what's your passion thing is the most passionate people I know are pretty impassionate about their passions. And the writing is a good example. You think I get like pumped up to write <laughs> like, no, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. 800 words? It's like, no, you sit down. You, hey, this is what I do. Like, I'm feeling it. I'm not feeling it. Um, and I know it's that same way with you with fitness, like you're not into it every day, but like, I'll get into my warm up, and you know, what's going to make me feel motivated. It's not some like, I don't know, idea of motivation. It's that 
I'm 15 minutes in and my body is starting to awaken to the habit of this movement and it knows what it's doing. And so I'm into it again. Yeah. And so I, I just think that the whole like passion and motivation thing is a lot of smoke and mirrors that is used to convince people to take $10,000 less a year. Yeah. I mean, you know, and and, it's all negotiation tactics. And, you know, and there are people like, you know, my wife's a good example. She loves what she does. Absolutely loves it. She gets to engage with people. She has an artistic aspect to it. She's now running her own business, but she's, and it's one of those situations. I don't know what percentage of society is like this, but where a, where a real passion meets a trade and a business that you can make money doing. And Mm -hmm. ultimately, you know, what, what, what I found and, and, you know, I think this will, this, this, this may evolve with time. I don't know, but we work for a massive company, but what I like within that company doesn't change whether it's 80,000 employees or 20 employees. I like engaging with people. I like connecting people. Um, and I like having interesting conversations. And so, you know, I can find that in, you know, in any company, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, the company that will, will give me a paycheck to do it, as long as I continue to do it well, I'm cool with that, you know? Well, this is kind of what I mean about, like, the lesson on do you have your principles properly examined. Like, it doesn't matter what the size of the company, like, you can work for a 100,000 person company like we do or whatever we are 80,000 at Cisco yeah or you can be an entrepreneur doing your own thing you know like Annie and either one of those organizations with if their principles are about you know here's what you here's the goal get there however you need to it requires the same sort of problem-solving intellect that you get to structure your day, that you are in control of how you spend it. There's a book by Daniel Pink called When, mm-hmm. and it one of the chapters is about the, which it's actually surprising how crazy restorative the lunch hour is. Critical. Yeah. Lunch hour is critical to having a successful second half of the day. The most important thing about the lunch hour isn't that you take a walk versus you eat. It isn't that you get out to a restaurant versus sit at your desk. The most important thing that correlates with the restoration that the lunch hour brings is if you choose how to spend it. Yeah. That it is entirely your choice of I get to do whatever I want with this hour. And if you have that freedom, then your second half of the day doesn't dip Yeah. the way like if that lunch hour is subjugated. So like if the lunch hour is an hour and boss says, oh, you know, tweaking this 30 minutes, even if you're a person who always ate your lunch at the desk, the new rule of 30 minutes that took away your one hour, yeah. your, pr- your productivity dips following that new rule. Oh yeah, no doubt about it. It's just a, just the way people are wired. Yeah. So I think it's a 
I guess the the more and more I learn about like the you know what we we use the word passion as a blanket statement and we use motivation kind of similarly mm-hmm. to cover up all these like why is this person productive at what they do and it's like oh well they love it it's like I don't even know if that's true I think we love what we become good at and we love that and we become good at it because we've repeatedly sacrificed and seen improvement and that gives us something like self-esteem and reliable happiness on tap because I know when I put in X I will get out Y Yeah. and getting your expectations met is actually way more important to happiness than like any raw event. Yeah. And I, you know, I think one of the biggest things for me personally that that's been helpful is to withdraw my, withdraw the connection of passion to like revenue or, um, Mm. or any type of deeper meaning. Like, like I said, I have said it multiple times. I'm passionate about my family, my friends, fitness of course you know what what gives me the ability to take care of all of those things and i'm I'm passionate about self-improvement and mental health and Mm -hmm. will be an advocate for anybody and like none of those aside from like my job none of those make me money but but how but then i also come back to how important is that really and i talked to a guy today the other day um he's leaving a company that i've you know i've i've talked to him probably 15 times or so We've only worked together for a couple months. So I just called to wish him well. And you know, my assumption was he's going to another company. He's going somewhere else. And he's like, yeah, I turned 50 last year. And you know, this pandemic really put things into perspective. I got a couple teenage kids at home. They're not going to be at home forever. So I'm just taking a sabbatical. I don't know when I'll come back to work, but I want to spend time with my family. And I'm like, <laughs> dude, that's, that's awesome. And why is yeah. that? It's such a such an anomaly in our culture, but I loved it. I'm like 50. Yeah. That's only watching, 15 years. <laughs> I'm watching This Is Us, and we can we can jump to the weekly segments here. Yeah. I've never actually watched the TV show This Is Us. I'd watch like six episodes, and I just didn't really like hook onto it, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so we're like, I don't know, 20 episodes in, maybe less. Yeah. But now that I'm a dad, of course. Oh, how many? Do you cry? Do you cry often? Uh, I've, there's, there's definitely times like Katie and I are normally like sharing ideas during the episode Mm -hmm. and there'll be periods, uh, you know, I won't say anything to spoil this old show for anybody, (laughs) but, uh, when William, Randall's dad, they take their trip to Memphis. Oh, yeah. And you kind of like find out about his whole life. Yeah. That, you know, we're talking about it as, as things go. And neither one of us has said anything for like 15 minutes. You're both like... It's like, you, you kind of know. It's I mean, like, dude, yeah, we're just, we're not there. There was one point in the first like two seasons where almost every episode for the last 10 to 15 minutes of the episode... I'm just sitting there with that knot in my throat. I can't yep. say anything, and I'm just like, and then a couple times where I legit like, I started crying. I'm just like, this is yeah. But yeah, yeah I mean, I've you had know, a couple. It definitely touches on some. Anyway, I interrupted you. I rudely interrupted you. Well, well, no, I mean, 
I kind of invited it with the now that I'm a dad thing. Yeah. It it is just true that that changes and it plays into this guy taking a sabbatical, right? But you know, there's an episode where a character like walks into work and they're like, "Well, what are you going to do?" And he goes, "I don't know. Maybe instead of running tomorrow morning, I'm going to take a walk. <laughs> Slow things down a little bit." Talk to my mailman. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I was like, yeah, that's that's somebody who's getting it. Yeah. Who's, and I think it, I'll try to tie this in. If you're somebody who is hell-bent to run in the morning, to get stuff done, then Adam Newman is like the extreme example of that. He just needed to be big. Yeah. And so he pushed and pushed, and when he found a little traction with this idea, he couldn't detach. And he wrote it straight into failure and devastation. And maybe that's kind of the big lesson. Like, keep your eye on what really matters. Yeah. Not on not on the accolades, not on this quote-unquote success. Might be something in there. I think you're right. There's something in there. Weekly segments. Yeah. This is from the We're Not Really Strangers self-reflection edition. Since all of our listeners are loyal, loyal repeat listeners. Don't miss an episode. No no need to explain that, but I did anyway. (laughs) Uh, When do I feel most productive? What time is it usually? Am I alone? Or with others. Get specific. I am, I'm certainly most productive in the morning. Um, and very much so solo. Um, I have, well, this, yeah, go ahead. Carry on. I'll, I'll, you said you are most productive solo. I'm most productive. It's tough because I can also be very productive when collaborating with others. But as far as like getting stuff done, mm-hmm. um, here, here's a good way. Here's a good example. Because if, you know, if we just frame it as like work, naturally I get more done in the morning because I'm not, you know, I have no afternoon hangover. Like I'm not, you know, no lunch hangover. Uh, the day hasn't steamrolled me yet with emails and so forth. But if Annie is ever, ta- if she ever takes the boys out of town and I'm at the house by myself, I will be juggling eight different projects and I'll start first thing in the morning. I'll start painting a wall. I'll go hang a light fixture. I'll wash the cars while the, while the paint's drying. And, and then by lunch, you know, I, I might work right through lunchtime because I'm so in tune with like what I'm getting done without any distractions. Like it's even, it's hard for me to even hang, um, uh, like a, a curtain when I have somebody there talking to me, whether it be my kids mm-hmm. or somebody else. So, so absolutely. I'm, I'm more productive alone. Um, I'm, I'm more productive when I have some form of music playing, usually not words, but like, there's a couple of playlists on on Spotify, like Deep Focus, which is sort of like 
I don't know. It's mostly electronic, but but there's not really many words. It's just kind of a flow state. Um, and definitely, uh, I'm, I'm more productive in the morning. In the afternoons, I tend to just kind of procrastinate. I'll I'll push stuff off, except for like that last 30 minutes of the afternoon. And then I'm kind of like just crushing through stuff, setting up my agenda for the next day. Before I dig in here, I'm making a mark. 30 seconds. I got to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whew. Sorry, man. Between the protein shake, the, the cup of water, and the 12 ounces of Bell V, I just couldn't hold it. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Even my big old man bladder. <laughs> Couldn't handle that much liquid. Well, you're on the wrong side of 30, my man, so time for some sawdust Uh, pills. Would be nice to get the prostate checked. (laughs) Hold it up till 40. (laughs) So the, uh, and sorry to interrupt on the, the kickoff on your answer, because the part that I wrestled with on this question of when do I feel most productive and the am I alone or with others, it's like, well... I'd obviously be most productive with others, right? Like many of us doing the work mm. would would do more work. I see what you mean. Uh, and and yet, I guess that's kind of the idea. Like, have I am I intentional enough with my time, or am I trying to am I trying to do my own thing? Like this multitasking, like you see people working on their phone even as they're trying to hang out with their family. And that never feels productive, right? It feels like a half measure. Mm -hmm. And you don't feel productive as a father and you don't feel productive as a businessman. You just feel like you're, you're barely holding both ends together. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yet I will say a lot of my ventures are solo ventures. Right. So like the writing, you don't, it's not a collaborative process. It's one of the reasons I love it. Yeah. Uh, And so for me, it's the morning and here's why. Even if I do the same amount of work in the day, like a workout at 6 PM, I wait until last thing at night to, to get in my writing I go to bed and I wake up the next day and I've I've got it back on the to-do list. If I do both of those things early, if I write first thing in the morning and then I do some work for Cisco and then I get my workout in at lunch, I get the full day of knowing I was productive. Mm-hmm. I did it all. And so I, my, it's kind of like time under tension when you're lifting, right? It takes a toll. This is like time under productivity. I have completed it, and I get the full day to feel like I did it. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, so I think that there's some... Even if you are one of these, I'm not a morning person, I think that's the strongest argument for trying to be a morning person. Knock it out first, and you get to feel good about it all day long. At least that's the way I try to... 
That's the way I try to live my life. Well, you, it's, yeah. That's why I'm telling other people to do it that way. It's funny you mentioned that because, you know, I'm typically, at least for the last year and a half, uh, I've also been like, um, you know, workout around lunchtime. Mm-hmm. But if if I have, now that I'm doing intermittent fasting, if you want me to tell you about so, it. So um, beneficial. But... But like today I had some time between when the kids went to school and when I had my first meeting. And so I did my zone two training for about 40 minutes. Nice. Showered, got right to work. Didn't even realize I was hungry until about 1030. But I also didn't have to think about, you're right. I, I at about noon, I was like, I got to get my workout. No, I don't. I already did it. It's done. I've completed it. And I don't have to work that in for the rest of the day. And so it's not like this constant, like, I'm not kicking the can down the road. Oh, this meeting came up. Oh, this meeting also came up. And now it's 3 o'clock and I'm like, well, do I have time to get a workout in? I've eaten too much for lunch. Like, yeah. Yeah. I, I like think, to front load. Yeah, I like to front load. Well, we, there was a story, uh, an Instagram story that, we both shared this week from Adam Grant talking about uh, languishing, yeah, and the concept of stagnation and why stagnation begins to feel a little bit like a low grade depression. And my experience with that has been that scarcity is kind of the the great emotional enemy, like. I don't have enough time. Or if you got a bad night's sleep, you wake up thinking like, oh, I didn't get enough sleep. Mm. Like, and it all starts to like back up on you because what you're really playing with, even if you can't tap into it directly, is the fact that your life is running out. Yeah. And there are things you want to achieve. Maybe it's financial independence. Maybe it's security for your children. Maybe it's... Uh, a preservation of your health and fitness. Maybe you have a dream you're chasing, something you want to publish, something you want to create. You know, and as the as the days tick by, you are becoming less the person you wish you were. Your options are dying out. And so, like, the big boogeyman out there is just this general scarcity. And so whatever those things are that you hold most dear that these are number one you gotta put them first thing in the day and everything else can kick rocks yeah you know and then no matter what you get through that day and you did what mattered most my two cents sounds like somebody who has read daring greatly by Brene brown <laughs> are you are you plugging in i'm pl- i'm plugged in man i'm three four chapters <laughs> in thank you to libby yes <laughs> I can't believe it. I have. I've read all Brene's stuff. I'm in. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. It took me. Uh, it took me a little while to get over the the macho approach to self improvement, but like she's just so good. I tell you what, man. I um, I have. So the timing is great. So I, you know, I'm I'm listening. I'm obviously listening to this one. And it's really. It's it's. Uh, I'm doing that in in conjunction with at therapy doing this thing called EMDR. I don't know what EMDR actually stands for, but essentially it's bilateral stimulation to uh, help you go back to a past event 
and resolve that event. Like for me personally, I have a, I have a lot of unresolved, like based on my, um, coping mechanisms or my survival tactics as a younger kid that I didn't fully experience or put a situation to bed. And so there's a couple mm. ways you can create this, the bilateral stimulation. But anyway, um, had a, just one of those days where I had just this incredible breakthrough where something just clicked and I, and, and it comes in perfect with the vulnerability, shame and joy equation where if you don't experience vulnerability on one end of the spectrum, you can't experience true joy on the other end of the spectrum. Mm. And I mean, we can get into more detail this, you know, on, on another, on another chat or privately or whatever, but I'd almost my entire life for, you know, various reasons been self-sabotaging my own joy, been cutting it short saying I can't get too far up. Right. And we've gone back to like the earliest memory I have of this and the stream of, it's almost like dominoes. It's like you tick that one over and it's like, Oh, this is a situation. I did the same thing and I've been doing it for 25, 30 years. Um, Mm. but it just came from working through this one situation, which on the surface is very insignificant. It's not a big, it's not like a big traumatic event but we've just been continuing to revisit it with the bilateral stimulation. And it's like a light bulb moment in combination with things like daring greatly. So anyway, just a little That's success awesome. story that, yeah, dude, I haven't had one of those in like a year, you know? And so, yeah, it was really cool. No, that's man. I, yeah, I, I actually would love to get more into this topic eventually because I really think like pretty, pretty deeply. I, I, I'm not saying I couldn't be argued out of this position, but I, I think it's pretty steadfast truth for me. I really think that the best way forward for a whole lot of people is to spend a lot of time understanding your own past. Mm-hmm. Like really getting into why you are the way you are. Yeah. And like caring about that. And particularly around big traumatic events and things that are tough to talk about and tough to bring up, uh, you know, they, they don't go away. They just stay locked inside of your head forever. Yeah. Constantly affecting the flow of your life. Yeah. It's like you got this, you got this rock damming up your river way back when and you can never really feel the full flow of who you're supposed to be as long as it's lodged back there. Yeah. And you got to go back and and get it out. That's it, man. That's it. <clears throat> man, I Yeah, Katie and I have had several conversations around this over the last few years since I started like really getting into things and particularly I've I've found that when I write when I write to Walter and I think about his childhood and like start planning it, it's so natural to think about your own. Yeah. And it just like, it opens up these things that I didn't ever, you know, some of it's with my parents. Some of it's like things I saw or things I got scared of or 
you know, things I enjoyed way too much. Yeah. Uh, and like just, just recasting the narrative has been so helpful. Like I, I, I really do believe we're all somewhat the story we tell ourselves over and over. Yeah. yeah. So that's a, I'm just, I'm glad to hear that you had a, you had a moment. Yeah, it was, it was weird. Cause, yeah. Cause I know how freeing that can be when it, when it clicks. Yeah. And you know, and that's, I think I, I, I mentioned that only, you know, one, cause it was, it was cool. It's on, it's on the top of my mind, but also you're right. We, we, we can gain a lot from really looking back, but that's where, you know, a good therapist can be helpful is what good is it to look back and then think about that that thought or that situation in the same way over and over again, especially if it's something that's damning you up. You know, if it's something that if the situation recurs and you react or respond in the same way and you want to change that, that's where having someone to sort of guide that, understand it and and speak about it like in full openness, because quite frankly, you know, if, if it didn't cost money, I would probably go to a therapist every day. <laughs> I mean, like, it's just very freeing sure. to be able to just speak, you know, speak whatever. Um, but also, like, I don't want to burden my wife with all of these things. And so, some of it's just me thinking about thinking out loud, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's she, a lot of churn would, that. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I'm retelling the same story over and over again in a lot of situations. And so not that not that Annie wouldn't hear it, but. You know, there's other things we want to talk no, about, but, like our future and yeah, yeah, and that stuff. Yeah, it's it's not a. I think a lot of times people talk about therapy, and it's similar to like when you hear people extol some of these versions of execution, right? Like taking the thoughts in your head and turning them into words, you'll hear people praise like journaling and therapy and accountability groups and, you know, AA and all these other things. When you actually get involved in those things, there is a lot of just getting the reps up. It is. Like you just got to show up and talk and do the work and it takes time. You are trading serious hours of your life and you're doing it because every now and then you really understand yourself and when you get one of those moments it improves every moment after that for the rest of your life yeah like it it pays off big yeah but but to get those payoffs you have to go through a lot of like a lot of missed shots a lot of like i i can't believe this guy is talking this long yeah, you know, yeah. Like you just bang your head a few times, but ultimately it's worth it. It's just like you don't want to make one single person like your wife yeah. pay that bill with you. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. 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 So anyway, dude, thanks for sharing. Yeah, man. We got there. It took us a minute, but thank you for sharing. Yeah, dude. Yeah, it's been it's been on my mind since about one. So anyway, all right. Recommendations, and then we'll close it up. Yeah, man. Uh, you know, mine uh, is going to be talking with strangers or talking to strangers, I should say. Um, and and if you can, the audio book was fantastic. Malcolm Gladwell is the author, and he also uh, tells the book or reads the book. And he does it in a way that is uh, 
very compelling. It's a story. He tells it like a story and it's not like a book. And it really, it visits a lot of tough to tough to deal with situations about how we deal with each other. Starts with uh, the Sandra Bland case. And we don't have enough time as we're kind of closing here, but you know, look up the Sandra Bland case. It's, it's pretty tragic, but it could have all been avoided had we taken a step back and realized, you know, tr- tried to see the uh, the world from the person we're talking to's point of view. And it deals with, you know, with that, it deals with um, alcohol. It deals with, um, talks about Bernie Madoff, Hitler, a, a lot of different topics. And they all, they're all tied together nicely. And uh, it was, you know, it took me about four days to get it done. Anytime I had a quick break, I was like, I'm going to put this on. I mean, I want to, like, I'm taking the dog for a walk just to listen to the book. <laughs> like, it's the second mm-hmm. walk of the day. But anyway, talking to strangers, Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. And I, I'll just back up the recommendation on the audio portion. Uh, I've listened to Malcolm Gladwell talk. He had a fairly in depth podcast with Bill Simmons about the changes to the publishing industry. And he talks extensively about how the audiobook portion of his sales has become so significant that he thinks actively about how he packages the audiobook differently from the book itself. Yeah. And you can you can feel that in the production. I've at this point I've listened to over a hundred audiobooks in my life. I don't know the number, but it's definitely over a hundred. Yeah. And the quality on that is top notch. Yeah, he's got he's job. got music in there. He's got live interviews, reenactments. Yeah, it's definitely more than just reading a book. Yeah, yep, for sure. And uh, man, since we're such literary people now, I will also recommend a book. Get after it. <laughs> ah, man this this life of letters that we live. <laughs> Uh, my recommendation is by Michael Pollan. It's called In Defense of Food. And uh, it is An Eater's Manifesto. And it, I've listened to a lot of health people on a lot of podcasts. And I've taken down a few different dieting books in my time. And I really think that this is... Uh, look, if you're... If you're serious about your diet, you've probably even come across this book, at least heard of it. Uh, it's a massive seller um, in its heyday. But he essentially goes back into the history of how the Western diet was built, the recommendations of the government, uh, food scientists and their stumbles to explain the all the magical elements of food that we can't possibly see with our eyes the nutrients that a label tells us these things have, mm-hmm. how those nutrients actually do or don't help the body, and how most of it has already been figured out by our own biological evolution. Even the things that scientists can't explain seem to have already been figured out by like your great-grandma <laughs> if she put a meal on your plate. has like a 99% chance of being better for you than you trying to stack up 
what nutrition scientists tell you has everything you need. Yeah. So it was a, it was a fascinating read. And at the end of it all, um, it's pretty basic and it's right on the cover. It's eat real food, not too much, mostly plants. And that's it. Just the concept of eating real food. It's like, well, what's real food? If your great grandma was with you in the grocery store and she picked up a gogurt, <laughs> and it's like, what the hell is this? Not real food. Yeah, that's right, right. Or like um, some cheese that lasts until 2022. It's probably not really good food. <laughs> not real food. Yeah. The the one other thing that's really important in there that I think everybody could start doing, and I'm sure we'll have like a serious ethical eating talk at some point, but uh, the the more steps it takes for something to get from the garden or the field onto your plate, the worse it is for you. It makes sense. Uh, yeah, very basic principle. Um, but yeah, it was awesome. It was short. It's about a six-hour listen if you go to the audiobook, which I feel like anybody listening to a podcast, audiobook is probably your jam. Yep. Um, but yeah. That's it, man. Just slanging books. Look at us. I become. I, I, I you know. I have to say it again. I've recommended Libby to everybody I talk to now. I can't recommend it enough. I know I'm a year late on this, did, but we should just rename the podcast to the Librarian's Friend. That's <laughs> <laughs> what we're about here. That's it. Well, dude, I enjoyed this, man. All right. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah, as always, the pleasure is mine. That's it. Guys, thanks for listening. Um, we've uh, looked to the few of you out there who took us up on the, the five-star rating and throwing us a review. Awesome. Much appreciated. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Yeah, legitimately warmed my day when I saw a few of those hits. So thanks, Todd. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Talk to y'all later. Tommy. Be good, good, man. Oh, jinx. See ya, man. (laughs) Bye.